This is an ABC podcast. This is the WA Country Hour with Belinda Varischetti on ABC Radio WA. I'm really glad you could be part of the Country Hour today. Good afternoon. Hope you're doing well this Friday afternoon. Today, you're going to take a look around a major Australian plant-based milk processor, which is heading towards its highest year of production. In our milk, we do do soy-based milk, we do almond-based, we do rice, we do oats, and we do coconut. And we're also now doing um, either soy-based or oat-based yoghurt. When this plant first started, I think in the first 12 months, it put through around about 10 million litres. Um, and as I said before, we'll, we'll be looking at sort of 65 to 68 million litres at the moment. And we're playing in a really good market. It's a, um, it's a growing market and it's a good alternative. So clearly you're not the only one drinking oat lattes. Also today, biological defleecing wool off a sheep's back. We're going to take a look at that because it's as simple as giving sheep a protein from corn, which after a few days causes a break in the fibre and allows the wool to be pulled off by hand. By creating a weak point that's consistent across the skin, it's happening at exactly the same place. So you don't end up with second cuts, which means all your staple lengths are exactly the same length which is great for processing. So the processors that we've spoken to, wool processors that we've spoken to, have been really excited by this and um, will hopefully help them with their, with their systems as well. More from Dr Sarah Weaver. She's a research fellow at the University of Adelaide just before half past 12 today. Seven past 12 here on the Country Hour. And speaking of wool, two WA wool growers from Cogenup 260 kilometres southeast of Perth, are vying for a seat at the table on the Board of Australian Wool Innovation. That's the organisation that does all the research, the development, the marketing for the industry on behalf of growers. The tenure of three AWI directors comes to an end at the AGM later this month, and there are five candidates standing for election, including the two from WA. Your local candidates are Neil Jackson who you'll meet shortly, and Steve Maguire, Vice President of WA Farmers. Steve, why do you want a seat on the AWA board? Um, I've sat on the board of Wool Producers Australia for six years, did my term there, and have learned a lot about the industry, Australia-wide and further upstream. Went to China in 2017, look at wool processing, and uh, my main driver for being involved in WA Farmers and so on is... I want to see farmers' levies well spent, and this is further to that. I'm interested in putting my hand up to go on the board of AWI. And how do you want those levies spent? Um, I want them spent to the maximum ability. Farmers contribute a lot of money in levies. I don't know how many of them actually go back and look at their the line item in their in their accounts and see how much money they pay in levies, but it is a significant amount. And so it's really important it hits the ground where it needs to go. In the past, you've uh, you've said that you want more spent, uh, well, not so much spent on the marketing side and more on the research and the technology side. Do you still believe that? Yeah, I, I do think there probably needs to be a balance, but it really is every dollar's got to work the best it can. All farmers must acknowledge that research is hard and a lot of money gets spent going down rabbit holes that go nowhere, but that's just the nature of research and we have to be tolerant of that. And we probably, 
the question I would ask is, is we are we spending enough on sort of the high risk, high reward things that it's very easy in research to, to, to go down the, the road of really just targeting the, the, the things that have a proven return. But sometimes if you want to make big changes, you really got to have a have a really good look at some, well, what people call blue sky, but don't really like that term myself. I'd say high risk, high reward. Mm. Like I mean, what, Steve? That, what, are you, what are you interested in? Uh, we're seeing with the wool harvesting, this new form of um, biological harvesting. There's some real potential there. That that's If we can pump a bit of money into that, into getting some machinery that can remove the wool from a sheep uh, a lot cheaper than it's been now, that would be a real plus in the industry. Now, over the years, you've been very critical of Australian wool innovation, uh, leading the charge, in fact, on opposing Australian Wool Innovation's request for a 2% wool levy uh, during the, what was it, 2018 wool poll. Uh, you won that battle, most growers voting for a 1.5% levy. Why now do you want to join forces with an organisation that you've often gone into battle with? Because you either put up or shut up, and I'm going to put up. Because probably won't shut up. Well, AWI had accumulated large reserves when the prices went up and had increased its spending by 50% over two years. And I just felt that some of that money was probably better in wool growers' bank accounts rather than um, sitting in AWIs. So at that point in time, I thought that was the appropriate levy. What are the key issues for the industry, do you think, right now? Uh, wool harvesting, the cost of wool uh, access to shearers is a real issue. Uh, I always say the main three players, big events are uh, wool harvesting parasites, so that's flies, lice, worms, and genetic selection. The, the genes are out there that we can, we just need to get them into our sheep and more widespread in the in the industry. But for Western Australia in particular, the, the threat of the closing of, of live export was a real threat to the wool industry in Western Australia. Now, AWI's uh, performance and also the governance has been a, a, a focus for quite some time. It's been under review uh, over the last couple of years or so. What's the result of that? Do you think... There's some good that's come out of that review. Do you think AWI is on track these days? Uh, yes, they've definitely improved their governance uh, markedly in the last six, eight years. So the strategic reviews happen every three years. They're, they're bound by the legislation to do that. And they just had a recent review of governance where they actually adopted all the recommendations before the report was even released. So give them kudos for that. No, so definitely with, with the new chairman and the CEO, they've certainly brought the government's a long way. There's probably a couple more things I could do, but definitely they're operating in a much better culture and place now. WA's only AWI board member, David Webster, his term comes to an end, well, shortly now, because it's going to happen at the AWI's AGM in November. How important is it to have a, a, a WA representation on AWI? Uh, to be honest, you just got to get the best people on the board, no matter where they come from. It should be what everyone's achieving, but it certainly is a better look at this over from WA, and WA is a progressive state. We have a, a culture of innovation, so I think having some WA growers on that board would be a good thing. AWI's board nomination committee for candidates to AWI's director election, uh, that committee conducted interviews and has recommended three candidates. You are not one of those, Steve. Why is that? Well, you'd have to ask them that. Maybe my criticism of the board in the past might not have helped, but hopefully that didn't come into it. But I can't – they didn't actually tell me why I wasn't selected, no. 
What was the process like? Did you feel it went well during the interview? Yeah, I thought it was a good interview. So were you surprised that you weren't selected as one of the preferred candidates? No. No, why not? Uh, <laughs> for the reasons I just gave you. So your campaign against that levy back a few years ago, you think that played into it? Uh, probably didn't help, no. Yeah. But no, look, I, no, it's an independent committee. or had three independent people on the board. So look, all the other nominees are good quality people, excellent quality people. So, you know, maybe it just wasn't good enough. Well, Cogent Upgrower Neil Jackson is one of the recommended candidates and we'll have a talk to him uh, shortly. How challenging do you think it is to get a place on the board? What's kind of in front of you? It's certainly a bit easier that there's three vacancies. There's no one, no existing board member uh, standing. So that, that opens up the field a bit. But, you know, there's five quality people all putting their names up. So it's, it's, it's a bit of a battle, but that's great for wool growers. They get a good choice. And uh, do you think wool vo- growers are going to vote? Uh, some do, some do. Uh, it, it's probably not enough. Uh, but I, a lot of farmers aren't engaged in what's going on, and that's fair enough. I've always said, with all the stuff I do, that I respect the right of growers not to be engaged. But you do pay your levies, which gives you the opportunity to vote. And unlike most of the other research development corporations, you actually get an open vote. Steve, good to talk to you. Thank you. No worries. Thank you very much. Steve Maguire, he's a coconut wool grower. He's vice president of WA Farmers. And he's one of five candidates for three AWI board positions, 14 past 12. Well, the other WA wool grower, also from Cogenup, interested in a board position, is Neil Jackson. Neil, why are you putting your hand up for this? Uh, Belinda, I've I've been, um, I suppose, 10 years ago, I was was asked to put my hand up and things, we'd just bought um, some new country and was developing that and getting it up to scratch and... And with the, time, the kids are at school and the timing wasn't quite right, whereas now I've sort of I've done quite well out of the wool industry. I'm passionate about the wool industry. Uh, my son's returned from Marcus and is taking on more and more day-to-day running. So I thought, well, why not? I'm, you know, perhaps time to give a bit back, and I'm certainly passionate about it. Um, it's just a magnificent fibre. And you've been in the industry for a long time. What do you bring to the table? You know, over all of those years, what are you bringing to AWI if you get your seat at the table? Yeah, Blinda, I don't claim to be a, a guru marketer or a guru financier, but I'd like to think that uh, I'm reasonably good at what I do in producing merino sheep. So I'm, I'm looking just to purely represent the grassroots wool producer. Um, RWI is fiscally challenged, I suppose, with the reduction levy and then wool prices have come off because of the recession in China, among other things. So I just want to make sure that the, the dollars are spent that's going to give a net benefit to the the Australian and West Australian wool growers. Um, effectively, that's just cutting through it all. I, you know, that's what I'm hoping to do. Did you agree with that reduction in the levy, the last wool poll? Because AWI was hoping for that 2% levy, but it turned out uh, it didn't quite get there. And the 1.5% levy was the one that the majority of wool growers voted for. Yeah, no, I was, <clears throat> excuse me, I was a strong advocate for 2% at the time, uh, purely because... Um, I've, I've always believed that it's not a particularly significant amount of our, our income, but also the world's changing, uh, markets are changing, we need to be at the forefront, things are a lot more expensive than they used to be, so hopefully we can you know, get those levies to work um, at 1.5% to try and achieve the, the same outcome. That's not going to be as easy, obviously, and things have to be cut. 
Now, the AWI Board Nomination Committee has endorsed your candidacy. You are one of three to have that honour. Why do you think you were selected? Oh, good question, Belinda. Um, um, the, the Board Nomination Committee did give uh, their, <coughs> their recommendations to the Board as to why they, they selected the three that they have. And I, I suppose we've just got different strengths. Uh, I know the other endorsed candidates, uh, George Millington from South Australia, has got a, a strong financial background and a, and a business uh, background, building a, a strong coffee business before buying his, his pastoral properties. And Emma Weston's got a, a digital background and I'm just looking to represent grassroots growers. You know, and I've managed to build a quite a, a successful farming business um, over the years. We've expanded a fair bit over the years and I think we all bring different things to the table. So I think it was a combination of a lot of things and, and how everything uh, meshes together at board level, I suppose. What was the process like, the interview process? Uh, quite harrowing, Belinda. Yeah, we sort of, uh, it was a face-to-face meetings. So all the candidates, uh, we flew over. Um, we were asked a lot of questions. The, the process went for about an hour. I sort of felt that they wanted to get to know as much about you as a person, as well as what you've achieved in business and, and various other aspects. So, yeah, it was, I was sweating. I must admit, I was sweating a fair bit. I didn't take my jacket off. The old underarms might have been a bit wet. <laughs> And what sort of advantage do you think the endorsement uh, gives you? Look, I, I suppose the only real advantage we get is if there are any proxies that go to the chairman. He's he's obliged to follow the, the board-endorsed candidates that have come through this independent nominating committee. So I think that will be the only advantage that, that we get. Um, the rest of it's just a matter of getting out and meeting and greeting people, which is, doesn't come naturally to me. I'm a farmer. I'm not a agri-politician or anything along those lines. Um, I'm there because I want to do a job. But people are going to want to know who I am and what I stand for. So it's just a matter of getting out and, and talking and meeting people. What, are the, what would you say are the you know, top three key issues for the wool industry right now? There are a few. Obviously, we'd love to see the price of wool better. But in saying that, relative to a lot of other, you know, the meat market and other commodities around the world, I think wool has, has stood up exceptionally well considering the Chinese financial downturn. Look, shearing is a big thing. Obviously, I've spoken to growers in Western Queensland, Northern South Australia, Western New South Wales, and in the last four or five years with COVID and, and various other things, the shortage of shearers has, has been absolutely terrible and it, it's been quite emotional for those growers. The unable to get your sheep shorn when you want them shorn with the welfare issues that are associated with it has been quite harrowing. So, Look, shearer shortage is something that I think is is very important. So the new technologies to work alongside shearers, I think, is imperative, simply because if this situation ever arises again, we're going to need uh, an alternative um, so that people can get their sheep shorn. The unfortunate thing is, if we grow the industry like I'd like to, I'd like to love to see another 10 million sheep in Australia, I wonder whether we'll have the shearers to do it. I mean, another thing I'm quite passionate about too, Belinda, is, is wool as is a clean, green, uh, magnificent fibre that it is. And I think that we don't control that narrative as well as we perhaps should internationally. You know, we need to sell that message in Europe before we get told the message, which isn't necessarily the one that we'll be wanting to hear, um, depending on their standards. As I understand, European Union has what they call the, a product environmental footprint for each product that's sold in in Europe. And... Um, Unfortunately, you know, I find it unfounding that 
they've put wool at the same level as uh, synthetic fibres. Um, so we've really got to sell our message that we're nothing like synthetic fibres. Uh, that needs to change. And as I understand, ODI have got a, a, a bit of a voice there in trying to get the criteria for the product footprint changed. So I think things like that are absolutely imperative for us. Where do you sit on mulesing then? Uh, <laughs> nothing like a controversial one, Belinda. <laughs> um, yeah, look, the mulesing thing, that's it's never going to go away. I'm a firm believer that market forces will, will sort that one out as soon as there's a premium. If the market was desperate enough to have purely unmules wool, I think we'd be seeing more of a stronger signal in the marketplace. There is a signal and sometimes a very strong signal and other times there's not. If I was specifically targeting the European market with a spinning type wool, I would certainly be not mulesing. You know, I think the premiums are in that market. The China, the feedback, as I understand, coming out of China is not indicating that there is a market for unmules wool, but it's certainly not the level of financial difference in the prices as what we're seeing going through Europe. Um, the sheep have certainly changed in my time in the industry. The, the sheep have, have nowhere near the skin on them and, and it's going to be a process that will happen eventually anyway. No one enjoys mulesing and all wool growers, they pay their levies to AWI. But to say that for us, as for AWI to say you should be mulesing or you shouldn't be mulesing, I think might be a bit of a stretch. I think it's up for each individual enterprise to work out how they want to go forward, how their management practices uh, can cope and take it from there. What's your vision for the wool industry, Neil? Oh, well, I'd love to be getting paid a lot more. Um, <laughs> we, all, we all would, Neil. <laughs> <laughs> we all would, I know. But I sort of see the future of wool, uh, and some will agree with me in some way, but I see it really in favourable terms. The clean green aspect of the wool, it's a biodegradable, fantastic natural fibre. So I... I'd like to think that that's going to be our future, you know, active wear, less formal wear, casual wear, targeting slow fashion. Um, a lot of those sort of things are important to me and, and I think that's that's where we need to, to be pushing it. Neil, good to talk to you. Thanks for your time here on The Country Great. Hour. Yeah, thanks for yours too, Belinda. Thank you. Coconut wool grower Neil Jackson, keen to be on the board of Australian Wool Innovation. There are five candidates vying for three spots on the board WA wool growers Steve Maguire, who you heard from earlier, and Neil Jackson in the running. And the results are going to be announced at Australian Wool Innovation's annual general meeting a little later this month, not far away, November 17th. 23 past 12 on the text. Steve has been knocking AWI for years. Yes, we went through that. Ron says, wool should be promoted as green fibre, not elite fashion. And this from Peter in Albany, no aspersions on any candidates, but we've had a serious problem since Adam was a boy where some of political and agri-political aspirants and players chase positions because it's the best paying paddock on the farm. We need skills-based applicants that fit positions. We have and had had some real duds who get through undetected, according to Peter. I share your thoughts on the text 0448 Nine double two six zero four, And, of course, being a Friday, Danny Burkett's going to be long just before the news at 1 o'clock. He's going to go through the market, wool market details for you and the market down a little bit. But Danny's got all the details and you'll hear from him a little later this hour. 24 past 12. The 
Country Hour with Belinda Varischetti on ABC Local Radio WA. Well, as both WA candidates for the AWI board mentioned, one of the key issues for the wool industry is the shortage of shearers and the need to look for alternatives. And I think that's why there was so much interest in a biological defleecing demonstration at Katanning last week. Biological defleecing, it works by giving sheep a protein from corn, which after a few days causes a break in the fibre, allowing the wool to be pulled off by hand. Now, this research comes from the team at the University of Adelaide. Dr Sarah Weaver is part of the research team and says so far the results are very promising. So these sheep have been fed a naturally occurring protein that can be found in corn and they've been fed this, this protein for 10 days um, and that's we know is a sufficient period of time to be able to create the weak point and then after 10 days they go back onto their normal diet and we put them out in the paddock um, and allow that normal fibre to regrow underneath and so we end up with a, a weak point. So these sheep have been treated for 10 days and then been back on their normal diet for two weeks. So when you say weak point, like what, what happens to the sheep? What, what does this protein do? So essentially what we're doing is, is disrupting the hardening process of the fibre. Um, so the wool fibre, when it's in the follicle, uh, goes through a, a, a stage called keratinisation and that's essentially where the fibre hardens and becomes sort of dead and rigid and hard. What we're doing is changing the mechanisms in the follicle to prevent that keratinisation process happening, whereas any stressful event actually stops the fibre from being produced by shutting down the follicles. So similar process to um, chemotherapy, and that's why your hair falls out, is because you're actually stopping the fibre from, uh, the follicle from producing a fibre. Does harvesting wool this way change the quality of the wool at all? Yes, and for the better. So by creating a weak point that's consistent across the skin, it's happening at exactly the same place. So you don't end up with second cuts, which means all your staple lengths are exactly the same length which is great for processing. So the processes that we've spoken to, wool processes that we've spoken to, have been really excited by this and um, will hopefully help them with their, with their systems as well. How have these WA sheep responded to the protein that you fed them? So they've responded um, similar to what we have done previously. They have responded slightly differently. But, and we don't, we don't know really why that is at this stage. I mean, at the end of the day, this is it's research still um, and there's some things that we don't understand. But we think that they've probably reacted differently because um, of their metabolic load, you know, what they've been fed, um, changes, differences between individual animals. Um, but what we've seen today in the sheep that have responded is exactly the same as what we've seen previously. So... Um, when you say they've responded differently, what's been the difference? Just the severity of the weak, weakness. And that might be down to how much an individual sheep has consumed. So the, the more they eat of that protein, the weaker the wool is, is going to be. So if they're a shy feeder, you know, or they're stressed, and so they're not going to want to eat as much, um, then we're obviously not going to see that reflected in 
in the weak point. So it depends on, you know, a lot of factors when you're repeating research <laughs> that can be a bit, yeah, an unknown. So what sort of difference could this research make to the wool industry? We think this is a bit of a game changer. Um, the really exciting thing is that it is different to buy a clip in that you don't have to put a net on. Um, and so you're not putting nets on, you're not taking them off, you're not trying to get wool out of nets. Um, that's time and money that you've invested into that. So being able to create a weak point, be able to bring all of your sheep in, inject each animal and then be able to put them out and then bring them back in when you want to harvest them. Um, you've also got, that gives you the flexibility um, back to the producers on when they want to do it um, and how often they potentially want to do it. The other big thing is that because we're not cutting, this isn't a cutting technology, um, we, we don't have the problem with skin pieces. So that, that means that we have better animal welfare um, and the less that we have to actually handle them by shearing them you know, if we can get to a fully automated system where animals are um, restrained mechanically and we don't have to get involved and handle them, that's less stress on the animal. We're not cutting them. Um, and it's also better and safer for, you know, the producers and those that are actually doing the work. So there's welfare um, positives for the sheep, but there's also OH&S and welfare positives for the, for the people involved in it. So you've done a few trials now. What's what's next? How far off are we from seeing this become something that is commercially available for producers to use? Yeah. So we've still got a bit of work to do. Um, we want to make sure we do it properly and we do it right. At this stage, we're sort of envisaging that, you know, to get through all of that and be able to get to large-scale trials on farm, we're going to be sort of looking at a, a four- to five-year if we're being optimistic. <laughs> Dr. Sarah Weaver, she's a research fellow at the University of Adelaide and she was speaking to Sophie Johnson. It is 29 to 1. Ellie Colvin is here from the newsroom with the headlines. Thanks, Belinda. The WA coroner has refused requests for an inquest from the parents of a 12-year-old girl who was killed in a broom helicopter crash. Amber Miller died when the helicopter she was a passenger in crashed just after taking off in July 2020. Investigations by police and aviation safety authorities identified several compliance issues with a helicopter's operator and pilot, Troy Thomas, who also died in the crash. But the coroner says those issues are outside his jurisdiction. Police have revealed the identity of a man found dead in bushland south of Perth. The body of Dustin Turvey was found in Mornington near Harvey on Wednesday. The 44-year-old had been reported missing earlier in the week. The homicide squad is investigating. Qantas CEO Vanessa Hudson says she's determined to make the airline one of the most trusted brands in Australia. Qantas has been in damage control following the exit of former boss Alan Joyce amid legal challenges and controversy over cancelled flights and lost baggage. Shareholders have been using today's AGM in Melbourne to call for changes to the board. Thanks, Belinda. There'll be more news at one o'clock. Ali, thank you so much for that update. It is 28 to 1. Still to come, Danny Burkett's going to be here just before the news at 1. He's going to go through the wool market for you. It is down a little bit here in the west and also at sales in the east. He'll go through all of it for you just before the news. And also we'll take a look at the future of safflower, safflower here in Western Australia, uh, especially after... Well, so many farmers in WA are still stuck with tons of the 
oilseed safflower on their farms after the company they were expecting to sell it to, still trying to raise some finance. So what is the future of safflower here in WA? We'll get to that shortly. And in just a moment, off to the Bureau of Meteorology. trouble getting through to the Bureau of Meteorology. So I'm going to give it another call and just hopefully I can get through. I don't know, maybe the phones are down there, but just bear with me while I make another call. Six to one here on the Country Hour, and now off to the Bureau of Meteorology. Angeline Prasad with you this afternoon. Angeline, let's take a look around the Southwest Land Division. How does it look this afternoon? going to be another hot and dry uh, afternoon uh, across the Southwest Land Division. Uh, we have got a, a few fire weather warnings out for the Midwest and this one district. So those hot, dry and windy conditions are driving elevated fire dangers across the Southwest. Now we have got a West Coast trough that is deepening. So there is a risk we may see high-based or elevated thunderstorms this afternoon in the area west of about Meridian to Lake Grace, extending all the way to about Malawa and extending into uh, into the Gascoigne, especially through the inland parts of the Gascoigne. So basically there's a heightened risk of bushfire this afternoon into the evening period because of those uh, because of the risk of dry lightning through these areas. The models aren't really going for much rainfall out of these thunderstorms and they're going to be fairly isolated. It's possible we may see maybe up to 0.5 or 1 millimetre from this very isolated thunderstorm activity, but it generally will be quite dry. Tomorrow, not much change. Uh, the West Coast trough remains, uh, near, uh, remains fairly deep and we have got a firm ridge of high pressure driving those very windy conditions in the morning so we could see fairly windy conditions across the scarp early to starting early tomorrow morning and continuing uh, throughout the morning period also another day for very hot temperatures or hot 
to very hot temperatures across the the Southwest Land Division. Um, and so those two factors, plus the fact that it's been quite dry, will drive up fire dangers again tomorrow. The thunderstorm risk tomorrow spreads um, pretty much right across the Southwest Land Division tomorrow. There might be a little bit more rain with those thunderstorms tomorrow, though. There's going to be a sporadic here and there as well, but um, we could see a little bit more rainfall from these thunderstorms, maybe up to four millimeters in some areas. And uh, one or two thunderstorms, especially if they start training, so go over the same area uh, uh, repeatedly, could get up to seven millimeters, but it's going to be very isolated. Much of these thunderstorms, again, will be dry tomorrow, so that um, risk of dry lightning continues into tomorrow, and that risk is over the uh, entire Southwest Land Division tomorrow, unfortunately. Um, the good news is that we do see a cooler change extend along the West Coast on Sunday, so we do see temperatures drop again. Uh, initially, it'll be on the West Coast, but that cooler change does extend further inland as we progress into next week. On Sunday, the, the risk of uh, dry thunderstorms will be mainly over the eastern parts of the Southwest Land Division, east of about Meriden to Katanning. So the risk doesn't ease on, on Sunday, it just uh, shifts eastwards, um, suddenly from Monday onwards, the risk decreases. And next week is looking um, milder for the Southwest Land Division. Um, but in terms of rainfall, uh, not much. The two best days for getting any rainfall is really Saturday and Sunday with those thunderstorms. But again, it's mainly going to be dry thunderstorms. All right, let's look into northern and eastern parts. How's that looking this afternoon into the weekend and the start of the new weekend? Well, Belinda, thankfully, we have started seeing isolated thunderstorms across the north of the uh, the state over the last 24 hours. We didn't see much rainfall, but the interior of the Kimberley did see about 10 to 20 millimetres from very isolated thunderstorm activity. And the good news is we will continue to see a gradual build-up of thunderstorms, especially through the Kimberley and the northern parts of the interior this weekend. In fact, by Monday, the thunderstorms do become a bit more regular. So over the next couple of days over the weekend... Generally, um, these diurnal thunderstorms, so mainly during the afternoon and evening period, will produce about 10 to 15 millimetres of rain. Sunday, a little bit more, but suddenly from Monday onwards, we could see isolated 15 to 30 millimetres, especially across the northern parts of the Kimberley. There are still significant fires burning across the landscape uh, through the northern parts of the state. Um, but um, So, again, that risk of dry lightning is still there, simply because the storms are fairly isolated currently. But yes, heading into next week, we do see a little bit more showers and thunderstorms. So we'll finally start to see those wet season um, thunderstorms that we normally start seeing by this time of the year. And then the warnings this afternoon. Yes. So we have got fire weather warnings out uh, for um, for the southwest. And these include... Um, um, for the so extreme fire dangers uh, for the uh, Midwest um, and uh, Swan Inland, and also um, no, uh, Mortlock. Now, fire dangers are going to continue tomorrow as well, and the most likely areas are again for Midwest Inland, Swan Inland, Mortlock, and Yara Yara. And thanks so much for going through those details. Appreciate it. Okay. 
20 minutes to one here on the country. Let's take a look at the rainfall now because in the last 24 hours to 9 o'clock this morning, there has been just a little bit of rain about in northern and eastern forecast districts. As Ange was just saying, there has been a bit about in the Kimberley and that's set to continue by the sounds of things over the weekend. So in the Kimberley, Bedford Downs airstrip had 13 Mount Amherst had seven mils and Mount Barnett 19. But that is the end of the rain story across Western Australia in the last 24 hours to nine o'clock this morning. Now, because of extreme fire danger today, Friday, November the 3rd, there is a total fire ban for parts of the Midwest, Gascoigne, Goldfields, Midlands and Perth metropolitan regions. The ban is for the local government areas including Midwest Gascoigne Region, Carnamar, Chapman Valley, Karoo, Dandarigan, Greater Geraldton, Irwin, Minganew, Morawa, Mora, Northampton, Perengery, Three Springs, Victoria Plains. Then in the Perth Metropolitan Region, Chittering, Jinjin, Mundaring, Swan, and in the Goldfields Midlands Region, Dalwollanew, Quarter, 2J, and Wongan Balladju. Now, during a total fire ban, you must not have any activity that could start a fire, and that includes having any outdoor fires, including using solid fuel barbecues, carrying out any hot work like grinding, welding and gas cutting, nor go off-road driving in a four-wheel drive on a quad bike or motorbike. It is your responsibility to check with your local government if there's also a vehicle movement ban imposed. If so, that means you can't use off-road vehicles, even for agriculture or industry. There's a map of the affected area at the Emergency WA website and more about the do's and the don'ts during a total fire ban at the DFES site. Just repeating, there is a total fire ban today for parts of the Midwest, Gascoigne and Goldfields Midlands region. Now, there are some harvest bans too because of the risk of fire. The following authorities have imposed a ban on harvesting and the use of any equipment that could potentially start a fire. That includes the shires of Delwollanew, Dandarigan and the city of Greater Geraldton, including Mullawar and Yelgu. Now, if you want more detailed information, including zones and the lifting of harvest bans, the best thing to do is to contact your local government. This is the Country Hour. It is 17 minutes to one o'clock. Now, farmers in WA are still stuck with tonnes of the oilseed safflower on their farms and the company they're expecting to sell it to is just still trying to raise finance. The financial problems of Go Resources has cast a shadow on safflower. But from an agronomic perspective, does it still have potential to fit in the WA farming system. Well, Michael Lamond from SLR Agriculture thinks so. He's running a number of COGO-funded trials to work out the best fit for safflower here in WA, and he reckons it will be a good break crop option in the future. We're looking at safflower in rotation with other crops species, including double break. We have got safflower and safflower. We have got wheat, safflower wheat, safflower canola wheat, safflower chickpeas wheat. What it's looking like is that we generally get a bit of a yield depression from a cereal in the year following safflower. It's due to the you know the high water use of safflower. Safflower roots get right down deep into the subsoil. They seem to 
handle the hostile sodic and saline conditions down deep and they, they draw the profile a lot deeper. So if you happen to get a sort of dryish year following safflower, the cereal is can often be terrible. And that, that was that's the case this year in those low rainfall areas. In situations where there's been you know, when it's not so dry, it's it's not quite as marked. But the interesting thing is when you go into a double break situation and you have that safflower in the first year of the double break, following with another broadleaf crop that's not as high water use, the following cereal is just spectacular. And we think this is due to not simply you know, water availability, it's due to drying out the subsoil. And we've done cores to prove this and the drawdown in moisture is much deeper than you get from a, any other crop. And if you have time for a leaching rain, well, those, um, the sodium and other salts are leached deeper and therefore the, the wheat in the following year of that double break seems to be able to access deep moisture. So I suppose the touch points are going to be on profitability you know, how is the profitability of a safflower crop compared to, say, other break crops? And, of course, it you know, really can't compare against canola, but we're not really pitching it against canola. So if the year that safflower is grown could be profitable compared to, say, a fallow or, you know, lower profitability grain legume, well, you know, the rotational margin or the rotational profitability should stack up. Michael, when I was looking at the story of the the market and the non-payment side of safflower, a lot of growers were saying that they weren't really happy with how the crop performed last year. There were a number of problems that they they came up against. What was your knowledge of them and what's being done about them? There was variable performance of the safflower. In some cases, it did go quite well. Others, it didn't. And there were some reasons for that. The main one was... We probably, in hindsight, sowed a lot of the crops too early, particularly there was some in the higher rainfall areas like Scadden and also in this York area and also some other areas of the, you know, they had a bit more rain. They were sown too early and they really got pained by Altenaria, which is a, a leaf disease. Then there was also various levels of disease through the crop, the establishment side. And in other cases, the either some little bit of herbicide damage. In other cases, they got really towed up by green peach aphid at the end. I suppose the other thing is that there was this comment, a few growers said to me, oh, look, I thought it would have gone better in a good year. Well, that's correct. It was a good year for winter crops, but, you know, safflower does most of its growing in the spring and matures, you know, in the summer. So really the season didn't have much of an impact in a positive way on safflower. Be better um, this year by the sound of it. Yeah. Well, that's <laughs> the interesting thing. The, the safflower that we've got in the ground this year is, is looking pretty good. We, we sowed, we think it's going to fit into a farming system probably at the end of their program. So we sowed, you know, some in the end of June, early July. It was coming through in July. And those paddocks or those, um, they're not trials, they're blocks that we've sown, look really good. I mean, they're not going to hit the high, you know, ones or close to two tonne that we have had, but they're a lot more compact. They certainly look like they're going to go over a tonne. So those vulnerabilities have been highlighted, though, the susceptibility to disease and also mm-hmm. some um, pests had a good chew on them. Are you working yeah. on the package to give it more resilience when it is a warm wet year like we had last year yeah we we are and we've actually done some work on our own bat looking at ameliorating the diseases that we had last year and ccdm did some great work in doing some getting some collections and typing the diseases we actually had we've got a bit of a leg into that and you know it looks like nearly completely removed the seaborne infection in the in the plant in the in the following year and also we've it seems to have held it back quite a lot this year so the end result this year is that we you know haven't had anywhere near the amount of disease i mean not, I, I can't say that we've fixed it yet but i'd say we're we're well on the way of understanding a little bit more about it do you think it went you know? too soon michael was it released yeah, to farmers yeah. too early yeah it yeah it did i mean we 
our advice to the company was just to have a few little plots here and there, you know, maybe 10 hectares. You know, a lot of the mistakes that were, occurred were, they shouldn't have occurred. And what about the markets for it? We just um, heard how some growers in New South Wales were able to uh, engage a lawyer and eventually sell their product into the bird seed market. Uh, it's being touted as a product for the petrochemical, the, you know, plant alternatives in that space. But do you see it working in a, in a different area as well? Yeah, well, that's the exciting thing about it. I mean, the super high league aspect of it is, which is, you know, this is why it's quite different to, say, chickpeas, lentils, faba bean or lupins. There's ready markets, there are growing markets, there are high value markets. We're not doing it the other way around, trying to grow something and find a market for it. So it's got that in its favour. The other thing that, um, well, we'll actually be doing some work next year on safflower, you know, as a plant-based protein supplement or, you know, replacement for uh, animal proteins. So that's pretty cool in itself in that that's an emerging market segment that could actually be as big as if not bigger than the, the high-end um, oil use of the high, you know the high leak safflower so you know we'll be doing work next, next year and again it's early days but a lot of the agronomy that we've sort of trying to unpack will be able to be used in in all safflower crops irrespective of what the whether genetically modified or not or whether they're for other other use patterns. Michael Lamond from CLR Agriculture. He's running Coggo's trials on safflower this season and he was speaking to Joe Prendergast. 11 minutes to one here on the Country Hour. Danny Burkett along shortly to go through the results of this week's wool market and a major Australian plant-based milk processor is heading towards its highest year of production. Vita Soy Australia will make around 70 million litres across a product line of soy, almond, oat, rice and coconut milks, as well as a new line of yogurts. With the rapidly rising popularity of oat milk, the plant-based milk market is expected to continue to grow. Annie Brown with this report. Want to go into that first room and have a look at the bottles being blown up? Have a look, yeah. I'm inside the Vita Soy factory on the outskirts of Wodonga in the northeast of Victoria. The other line's just started, so you can do that as well. Around me is a moving line of milk bottles that are being filled, capped, labelled, and packed. It's fast. What's that? What are they making? Um, that's our almond barista. Oh, okay, yeah. <laughs> General Manager Peter Bowman is giving me a tour. So what we've um, what we've just wor- wor- walked through, Annie, is um, our PET line. So it's our one litre uh, milk line. And then it goes to supermarkets where people buy it and put it in their fridge. Yep, it eventually will end up there. It goes to our distribution centre first, and then from there the product's distributed to customers. And talk us through your product range. What do you make here in Barranduda? Yep. So in our in our milk, we do uh, we do soy based milk. We do almond-based, we do rice, we do oats, and we do coconut. And we're also now doing um, either soy-based or oat-based yoghurt. When this plant first started, I think in the first 12 months, it put through around about 10 million litres. Um, and as I said before, we're, we'll be looking at sort of 65 to 68 million litres at the moment. And we're playing in a really good market. It's a, um, it's a growing market and it's a good alternative In the last decade, the plant-based milk market has grown year on year. 40% of households now have a plant-based milk in their fridge. CEO of Vitasoy Australia, David Tyak, says the expansion has been driven by a range of consumer behaviours. Need-based 
or lifestyle change to veganism or just a bit of more uh, awareness of the whole offerings of plant-based milk as they become more, more prevalent in supermarkets, the range is growing, the size is growing, as well as in coffee shops too. There's not so many coffee shops these days where you can't walk in and order a soy latte or an almond latte or an oat latte too. So the, the proliferation of the offers makes it more seen and therefore more people are trying it too. I guess between soy, almond and oat, they'd be your most popular milk Yes, they are. Products. Yes, they are. Which one of those have you seen the most growth in recently? Uh, oats. Oats gone absolutely ballistic the last four years. Right. And what's driving that growth in oat, do you think? There's probably a couple of things to it. One I'd say is that it's the most sustainable crop in the plant-based milk game. So least water use, least land required, least emissions. Next best in a plant-based milk is soy. So therefore, the, the, it's from a sustainability-wise, it's the best one there. In terms of the taste, it's quite a neutral taste. So it's a, a, a very good gateway jump from dairy into the world of plant-based milk is oats. It's creamy, it's neutral in its taste profile by itself and allows then the ingredients that you're using with, because you use it to either wet cereal or whiten coffee or that part too, and coffee in a cafe sense it makes the oat shine, uh, makes coffee shine through when you use oats. On soy and almond, the next two biggest ones in terms of you know, usage in those occasions, soy can be found beanie and almond can be, can be found nutty. In terms of popularity, is, is soy still king or is almond or oat uh, sort of creeping up behind it? Uh, almond is king. So soy used to be the only offer in, in the world. So late 80s, 90s, it was only soy. Almond became the thing in the last 10 years and went to being uh, number one quite fast because everyone could see the picture, the handful of almonds in, 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 in the hand and they, go, they know what the taste is and all that part too. So almond's been the beta for for the last seven years, uh, followed by soy. Oats coming up fast at number three, highest in growth. We'll probably eclipse soy in the marketplace next one or two years. And I think we'll then uh, take over from almond two to be the largest segment in a plant-based milk market within a year or so post that. And so what are the future projections for the plant-based milk market? Where can it grow to? We know from our research that we think there's another 30, 30% of households, so three zero, that could be open to having plant-based milk in, in their repertoire. But we know beyond that, that's probably the limits for plant-based milk is there is a further 30% who are dairy loyalists and will not consider a, a plant-based offer. So from the current household penetration of 40, we think there's another 30%, which is, is almost doubling the marketplace essentially. So we think there's more penetration, more users from that part too. Beyond that, we think there's more to gain from uh, increased consumption too. So we know from people who drink dairy, their consumption per person per week is greater than what they consume in plant-based milk. So we still think there's some ways that we can make plant-based milk more affordable, more available to them to meet all their consumption needs as dairy does too. And I think beyond that, it's in... Uh, we've recently launched into yogurts is how we then look to other ways that dairy delivers protein and calcium, how we do it in a plant-based way. That is David Tyak. He is the CEO of Vitasoy Australia and he was speaking to Annie Brown. Now, just having a little trouble getting through to 
Danny Burkett to go through the wool market details for you. We'll just give his number another try. We've been ringing. I, I'm sure he hasn't forgotten about us. He never does that. Are you there, Danny? Can you hear me? Anyway, we'll give him another try and hopefully we'll grab him shortly. Hello, I'm Nick Grimm. Join me for The World Today. The woman facing murder charges over a mushroom meal faces court in Victoria. The matter adjourned so police can examine evidence seized from her home. We'll get the latest from inside the court. Angry shareholders get their chance to face Qantas directors and senior execs at the company's annual general meeting and releasing music now and then. Decades on, a new Beatles song hits the airwaves with the help of artificial intelligence. The World Today, not far away here on the country, are three minutes to one o'clock. And as you heard a moment ago, uh, I don't know, if, are you one of these people that have changed from dairy to having your coffee made of, well, there's there's a whole range of them, isn't there? There's soy, there's almond, there's oat, there's rice, there's coconut milk. The choices are, are quite broad when you go into the coffee shop these days and place your Order. And we heard that a major Australian plant-based milk processor is heading towards its highest year of production. So across all of those ranges, Vitasoy Australia is going to make around 70 million litres of these um, plant-based milk milks, the different milks. So it's rapidly rising in popularity. I wonder if you've joined the bandwagon. This on the text from Maka who says 40% of people maybe in Melbourne drinking these sort of milks, but not in the real world. Real milk makes real people normal with healthy uh, functions, apparently, according to Mucker. Thank you for that. I don't know. Look, when I look around the coffee shop that I go to, uh, there certainly is. Most people in the line are not choosing dairy. They're choosing one of these alternatives. Well, let's get to the wool market. I uh, can't find Danny. But after weeks of rises and a steady market last week, the good run for wool prices has come to a bit of a halt. As Andrew Beaton from Nutrient Wool explains, there was only a small drop overall. Yeah, well, we're starting to eat into our gains now. The market did slip a bit this week, uh, nationally on an offering of 44,378 bales. In the east, over two days, they were down six cents Tuesday, down four for the Wednesday to be down 10 cents for the week. Eastern market indicator now at 1,129. In the west, we offered 7,939 bales. We were down 13 cents on the Tuesday, but the market did gain two cents on the Wednesday. So we're selling last nationally, obviously, uh, the market did whole ground. So we were down uh, 11 cents for the week, uh, our indicator now at 1,255. Okay. So as you said, not not too bad uh, all being said and done. Resistance-wise, how do things look? Yeah, not too bad. I think growers are um, starting to realise the market's pretty flat. There's not seem to be a lot of future in any sudden, you know, gains in the market. So there's 6.3% passed in Tuesday, 89 for the Wednesday, 4% withdrawn Tuesday and only 2% withdrawn the Wednesday after that 13 cent fall on the Tuesday. So I think that's showing that growers are willing to start to sell and uh, clear their wool. Andrew Beaton from Nutrient Wool in Esperance with Tara DeLangraft. Good to talk to you on the ABC. Time for the news, one o'clock. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. 
Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.